0: It's pretty rare that an established fighter surprises the fanbase and does something completely unexpected or performs in a way we didn't see coming. If you've been in the spotlight long enough for us to know what you're capable of, there's a good chance we're going to get that each and every time. Whether it works against a certain opponent with their own unique skill set, that's a different story entirely. But largely, to steal a line from Dennis Green, fighters are who we thought they were. Which is what makes this list so interesting today. These ten fighters have been hitting us with established norms over the course of considerable careers, only to absolutely surprise us one fight for better or worse. Whether it was an off night, an unexpected strategy, or some truly bizarre behavior, we did not see these ones coming. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and these are 10 uncharacteristic performances that shocked fans. Number 10, Nate Diaz versus Rafael Dos Anos. When you think of a Nate Diaz fight, you're getting high volume striking, that Diaz brother bravado and showmanship, a guy with an iron chin that even when he's losing, he's always coming forward, always one clean shot away from turning the fight around. He's one of the most exciting fighters in the entire sport. But if you'd only ever watched his fight with Rafael Dos Anos at UFC on Fox 13, you would say, who is this person you just described? Because there's no way he's in the cage. Things started off bad that week even before the fight. Nate missed open workouts and missed weight by 5.5 pounds, the only miss in his entire career. Diaz was coming off a year-long absence from the cage, frustrated with his contracts and opponents. Nate admitted later he was injured in camp and unable to train, resulting in his poor shape. The Stockton fighter looked like a ghost of himself for the entire bout. In that era and going forward, on average, in seven fights that were three rounds or more, Diaz averaged 300 thrown strikes, cut that in half. Against RDA, he would throw 145 and land only 13 significant strikes, not a single one in the third round round. He got dominated everywhere, on the feet, on the ground. Honestly, how every round was not a 10-8 makes no sense to me. They only gave RDA the one, but he deserved a lot more. There was virtually no offense from Nate in the second or third round, and even in the first, he looked sluggish and just off. A bizarre night to say the least, and totally out of character for the usually game Diaz. Number nine, Clay Guida versus Gray Maynard. We have a lot of data on Clay Guida. He's had over 30 fights in the UFC, and so when I say that his average significant strike accuracy is 34%, that's pretty much a lock. But that was not the case in his main event bout against Gray Maynard at UFC on FX4. Despite throwing 321 strikes over the course of five rounds, Guida only landed 14% of them. The only bout to go five rounds in Clay's entire UFC career, the carpenter was at the time briefly training out of Jackson Wink, and the 600 level IQ game plan was to stick and move on the outside. A surprise to most, as the wrestler averages three takedowns a fight. Here he landed none and only attempted three. This is the man that has the record in the lightweight division for career control time as well as top position. He's also known for rushing in like a madman, guns blazing, a la the Diego Sanchez fight. So to say this was an uncharacteristic performance is accurate on a whole bunch of fronts. Maynard was both confused and frustrated for the entire bout, unable to get into range to hit Guida before he would dart out of the way again. In round three, 13 strikes were landed total between the two of them. The most in any round was 28 and that was the fifth when Clay was finally warned by Dan Mergliata that he needed to engage more. Thanks for doing that 20 plus minutes into the fight there, big guy. Maynard would win a split decision, and the bout is considered one of the worst main events in UFC history. To make a guy like Clay Guida go out and fight like that, fight sucked. Number 8 BJ Penn versus Frankie Edgar 3 Their first bout an absolute stunner their second vindication for a new champion their third? I have no idea what the hell this fight was. BJ Penn came out of seeming retirement in 2014 after a year and a half away from the sport to drop down to featherweight and have a trilogy fight with Frankie Edgar after coaching a season of tough with his former lightweight champion rival. While the prodigy didn't exactly look great the last time we'd seen him in the cage against Rory McDonald, he still looked himself just outmatched by a younger larger fighter in their prime. Penn had always been known for his dynamic style, a crisp and accurate striker, a jiu jitsu ace on the ground, a finisher in 11 of his 12 UFC victories, solid takedown defense. The man's an all time great. Throw everything I just talked about, all the stuff you know as BJ Penn and his style, right out the window. Instead of being BJ Penn, the prodigy who had apparently been workshopping this new stance at the gym chose to engage Edgar in what I can only describe as the posture of a number two pencil. The result was a disaster. Penn looked like a shell of the fighter he once was, landing just 13 strikes in three rounds and being taken down in every one of them with ease, probably because of the standing straight up. He was controlled for nearly nine minutes of this 14-minute bout, unable to do anything off his back. Penn was getting battered on the ground in the third when Herb Dean mercifully put a stop to the beating. Afterwards, BJ would retire from MMA again, only to come back in 2017 for more punishment. Number seven, Paul Daly versus Michael Venom Page. Simtex. They call him Simtex because of his hands. They're explosive. If you'd never seen a Paul Daly fight in your entire life, all I would need to do is explain to you what I just did, for you to understand that his performance against Michael Venom Page at Bellator 216 was, to say the least, uncharacteristic. With 34 of his 43 career wins coming via KO TKO and the rest via decision, it's safe to say that the English kickboxer Paul Daly isn't exactly keen on the ground game. When he was paired up with MVP for the Welterweight World Grand Prix quarterfinals, it was a no-brainer as a promoter. Two of the most dynamic and exciting strikers in the entire promotion, a ton of bad blood between them for years, what could possibly go wrong? Well, how about everything? For the first five minutes, neither fighter did pretty much anything, and the crowd absolutely hated it. Paul threw a single strike, if even that. Nothing like kicking off one of the most anticipated fights in Bellator history by sucking the air out of the room in complete stagnation. For the remainder of this uneventful fight, Daly, the guy with simtex hands, would be constantly looking for takedowns and spend as much time as he could in top position doing a whole lot of nothing. You know, things that a guy who is known for knocking people out does. I can't say MVP did too much either, but I suppose it was enough to get the win if that's even what you want to call it. Daly blamed the loss on politics and said they took the win from him because he was a striker who wrestled. Number six, Kane Velasquez versus Fabricio Verdum. If your nickname was Fast Feet or Lightning Legs or Speedy and it wasn't given to you, ironically, the last thing I would imagine that you would have trouble with is being fast. That seems to be a trait about you that everyone recognizes and acknowledges. You are a fast person. If anything would be to your detriment, it certainly would not be speed. All right, now let's talk about Cardio Kane Velasquez. The former UFC heavyweight champion was an absolute machine in his prime. Strikes landed per minute 6.37. That is crazy output for a heavyweight. He averaged five takedowns a fight. He spent 50 minutes punching Junior Dos Santos in the face and landed a total of 484 strikes. He attempted 46 takedowns in those two fights. That is outrageous. The guy could go all day and then some at sea level. Actually, I decided to calculate the average altitude of his previous bouts in the promotion prior to UFC 188, and Kane fought at, on average, 808 feet comfortably, but also had plenty of success as high as 2,000. Mexico City, over a mile and a half in the sky, well, that's a whole different type of air. And the champion famously didn't show up early to get acclimated to the lack of oxygen. His opponent, Fabrizio Verdum, did. And as a result, we got an uncharacteristically sluggish to borderline exhausted performance out of Velasquez by the third round of the fight. Cardio's tank was pretty much empty at that point. After getting battered at 7,300 feet, a desperation takedown would lead to a guillotine choke and a new champion. Number five, Sean Shark versus BJ Penn. Okay, so this time, let's say your nickname is the Muscle Shark. You've landed 41 takedowns in eight, UFC bouts, 16 of those in your previous title defense, 8 when you won the vacant lightweight championship against Kenny Florian, and you had 20 minutes of control time in those two 25-minute title bouts. You are very clearly winning as a result of your wrestling pedigree and the tremendous size and strength you have along with it. As a matter of fact, your only promotional KO TKO came six years previous. Now, you're fighting BJ Penn, one of the greatest strikers in your division. He's got 8 finishes and 8 UFC victories. What are you going to do to win the fight? Attempt two half-committed takedowns, land none, and try to engage in a stand-up war with the prodigy. Perfect, I'm sure it's gonna go fantastically. Sean Shirk was coming off a brief steroid-related suspension and stripping of his title in 2008 when he met new champion Penn at UFC 84. BJ was a slight betting favorite going in, but I bet if the bookies knew that Shirk wasn't gonna even attempt to wrestle in this fight, he would have been minus 1,000. Penn would outland the challenger 130 to 52. Shirk was 28% on his significant strikes, while the champ was landing at 69%. Yeah, that's bad math for the muscle shark. Factor in the lack of takedowns, and by the third win, when BJ ended things with his iconic flying knee, he was already running away with the thing. A baffling choice by the former champ, maybe he was just mad about that Sean your deadline and really wanted to punch him. Number four, Chuck Liddell versus Randy Couture won. Going into the interim light heavyweight title fight at UFC 43, everybody knew exactly what was going to happen. Randy Couture coming off two losses at heavyweight, he was gonna get absolutely smashed by Chuck Liddell, who was rapidly becoming the star in the promotion. This bout only made to put pressure on champion Tito Ortiz, who had refused to fight Chuck. The kickboxing Iceman was clearly going to outstrike wrestler Couture, and the man was the definition of sprawlin' brawl. If ever he was taken down in a fight, Liddell was back on his feet in no time and throwing straight murder. 4 KOTKOs during his eight-fight win streak leading up to UFC 43, he'd never been outstruck in a single fight of his career, never finished via knockout. Everybody was in for a big surprise on fight night, though. Liddell was completely outmatched in every facet of the fight. He was taken down hard four separate times, the most he would ever be taken down in a single fight of his career career. Couture also had the most control time of any bout in Chuck's career. What blew everyone's mind, though, is not the wrestling but the striking. Right out of the gate, Randy was beating Liddell to the punch every single exchange. It was total domination on the feet. Chuck was regularly taking big shots as he either hit air or didn't even get a chance to throw back. Liddell landed only 22 significant strikes to Couture's 46, but even that stat does not do this fight justice. Chuck couldn't hit Randy with anything that was doing damage. It was a shocking three rounds capped off with Liddell getting finished on the ground, his first ever KO TKO loss. In their two subsequent rematches, Couture would be thoroughly defeated, finished in both. But that one night in 2003, the Ice Man just came out cold. Number 3, Francis Ngannou versus Stipe Miocic, too. Ah, uh, you thought I was going to talk about the Lewis fight, didn't you? But honestly, who wants to talk about that one at any point? It happened. It was definitely uncharacteristic. Now let's move on. Because while Francis Ngannou froze up in that bout, he showed a side nobody expected when he finally got his rematch with Stipe Miocic for the heavyweight title at UFC 260. In their first outing, if you recall, the Predator came into the fight with massive hype, having beheaded Alistair Overeem in his previous fight after going 5-for-5 five five in the UFC with a finish in every one of them. But the challenger would blow his proverbial load too early, I'm talking about gambling, get your mind out of the gutter, by throwing every punch humanly possible at Miocic in the first round and hitting essentially nothing. He then spent the next four rounds in wrestling hell and got 50 44 on all three judges' scorecards. Big yikes. But following that loss and the fight that shall not be named, Francis got back on his horse and rode that sucker through four more opponents, getting first round finishes in every fight. While Nganu came into the rematch a slight betting favorite, nobody was expecting a patient and surgical Francis to put together a masterpiece. Even scoring a takedown in the first round. I mean, who am I even watching fight? Having learned his lesson from their previous outing, Nganu would take his time and end the fight 52 seconds into the second, folding the champ up to earn UFC gold in a performance that showed a remarkable growth in his overall MMA game. Number two, Anderson Silva versus Damian Maya. It's the fight that literally created Chael Sonnen. There was so much anger directed at Anderson Anderson Silva after this fight with Damian Maya, that the bad guy formed to life from their collective disdain to seek retribution in the form of an American gangster. By UFC 112 in 2010, the spider had garnered a reputation as the most feared striker in the sport, but essentially off the back of a few fights where he let lesser talent stick around with him, was now being heavily criticized for being too safe. When his title defenses against Patrick Cote and Talis Latis were duds, the latter particularly bad mainly because Latis thought Silva would just willingly hop into his guard for 25 minutes, Anderson was given a bout with Forrest Griffin, the logic being that the tough winner would give Silva a fight. And they were right, he did push forward, it just had disastrous results for the former light heavyweight champ. Then the Maya fight happened. Nobody wanted this bout. It was meant to be Vitor Belfort, but as a late replacement, the submission specialist would enter the main event. To say Silva's performance was uncharacteristic doesn't do it justice. It was downright bizarre. Of all the five-round fights in Silva's history, he landed the least strikes in the Maya bout, probably because he spent so much of the fight doing nothing but shuffling around and/or taunting the challenger. Somehow Maya ended up with a busted face by the end, but there was virtually no engagement from start to finish. At times, literal minutes passing between Silva's actual attempts at offense. His bizarre behavior would draw the ire of the fans in attendance, as well as Big Dan Mergliata again in the fifth round, just like the Guida fight, warning him he'd take a point. Ho ho, that showed him. The final round in which 12 strikes total were landed ended with a chorus of boos and an angry Dana White leaving Silva's manager to put the belt around his waist. What a weird, weird fight. Number one, Amanda Nunes versus Juliana Pena. Yeah, you You knew this was going to be here. The analysis and attempts to understand what happened at UFC 269 are still pouring in as I write this piece. Amanda Nunez, the greatest female fighter in history, with wins over a who's who of all time greats. Before 269, it was entirely undisputable, and I personally think it still is, but it just goes to show you how uncharacteristic this performance was by the Lioness for people to now start questioning her GOAT status. It was, without a doubt, one of the greatest upsets in MMA history. Nobody was giving Juliana Pena a chance against Nunez, The double champ was on a 12-fight tear since changing camps to American Top Team, and along the way had beaten anybody who's anybody. Peña was 2-2 two two in her last four. Even the first round, despite some submission attempts and not a ton of output by either fighter, there were no alarm bells. It was more so everyone saying, well, Peña dodged a bullet in that round since the champ kind of started slow. It was in round two that one of the most baffling things that's ever happened in the history of the sport took place. For some damn reason, Amanda Nunez decided to engage Juliana Peña in a sloppy brawl, a la her fight with Cyborg, except she was Chris this time. Gone was any semblance of technique or strategy, but for the fact that Peña was moving her head out of the way while 74 significant strikes blasted the champ's face, more in a single round than any other fight total in Nunez's entire MMA career. Completely exhausted from the beating and the brawling, Peña would secure a takedown in the champ's neck to score a title victory that most people still can't believe they witnessed. Huge shout out to Max Randall for editing this video together. Follow him on Twitter at Max underscore Randall. A big, big thank you to Ben Rosette, who provided that sweet tune you heard in the intro. Check out his music by clicking the link in the description and go give him a follow on his Instagram and Twitter page at Ben Rosette. All right, that's all I got for you. Thanks for watching. Please like, subscribe, and have a wonderful day.